Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. 430 years, Israel was enslaved by Egypt. Finally set free in the Sinai Peninsula, Moses brings 10 laws from the top of the mountain, adds 603 more. Those laws set to help Israel become a strong nation. But even more importantly, to make sure Israel never became the oppressor. They'd been through four centuries of oppression, and God wanted to make sure that Israel was focused on the women, the children, on the widows and the orphans, on the poor, those who do not have opportunities in life, on the immigrant, on all of those who were minorities. And as long as Israel took that to heart, Israel thrived, probably reached its apex under the kingship of David whose second son, Solomon, a wise young man, took his place as king of Israel. And initially, he also led with great concern for the oppressed. But unfortunately, in all of us, there's a war going on. On one side, we want to love our neighbor. On the other side, we want to have power over our neighbor. And as we know far too often, whether it be a man with a lot of physical power in a family, or whether it be a king of an ancient nation, absolute power absolutely corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we find that Solomon, a man who wanted to love his neighbor, more often wanted to have power over his neighbor. So he built a beautiful temple, but he built it with slave labor. He built three beautiful cities, but also turned them into military installations from which he could wage war. He became an arms trader, and Israel became a shell of its former self, once again enslaved to the Babylonians. And then Jesus arrives to do a hard reset. Jesus arrives to remind us, God has always had great concern for the oppressed. God's heart has always been with the poor, with the women, with the children, the orphans and the widows, with the immigrants, with those who are less fortunate, with those who have fewer opportunities. God has always had God's heart firmly with the oppressed. Jesus finally gave that message one last time in a public way. And in answer to the last question, public question he was ever asked, he said those 613 laws can be boiled down to three. Loving God, loving neighbor, and loving self. And so the church grew. 
And the church took that message to heart, and the church brought great love to the world, loving God, neighbor, and self, as long as the church was under oppression. In fact, whenever the people of God were under oppression, they actually did a whole lot better at loving the oppressed than when they found themselves in positions of power. That happened in 313, when Christianity, already a legal religion in the land, became the preferred religion in the land. And now we find the people of God once again, instead of loving their neighbor, loving to have power over their neighbor. It reaches the depths of depravity from 1095 to 1271, the period of time we call the Crusades, when Christians were killing Muslims and Muslims were killing Christians, fighting over who would have control over the Holy Land. And so the Reformation came to reform the church, to move it away from oppression, to never be the oppressor, to love neighbors. And what happened? 1618 to 1648, there was the Thirty Years' War in Western Europe. One-third of the entire population of Germany was killed. That would be the equivalent of 120 million Americans being killed in one Thirty-Year War. And who was the war between? It wasn't two nations. It was Protestants and Catholics. And so continually the people of God found themselves loving power over their neighbor more than loving their neighbor. We come across the Atlantic and we find the pilgrims who fled England because of the religious persecution and then proceeded to persecute everyone except other pilgrims. And it brings us right down to today. Just two months ago, the 6th of January, in the Capitol building. In the midst of an insurrection, there were two flags that did not belong there. There was the Confederate flag. A lot's been spoken about that. There was also a Christian flag. Neither one of those flags belonged in the midst of an insurrection. What's going on? Why did the people of God begin as people concerned for the needs of the oppressed and end up as the oppressors? Well, the sociobiologist Edward O. Wilson has told us, you do have nine tribal species. Unfortunately, one of those nine has evolved to believe that an enemy is necessary for the tribe to survive. And where no enemy exists, we create one. And as I said two weeks ago, unfortunately, we live in a world today in which our created enemy is more important to us than the natural enemies we face. Take a look at the three desert religions and their fundamentalist forms. Christianity, Islam, Judaism. They prefer the created enemy of the LGBTQ population to the real live enemy of COVID-19 and climate change. And the conservative side of the Catholic Church and all of the Catholic Church's leadership worldwide told us exactly where they stood this past week when an edict came down from Rome saying that there was not a Catholic Church in the world, not a priest in the world allowed to bless a gay marriage. This coming from the Church that for centuries has done virtually nothing to stop priests from abusing children. 
this, a church that even up to the last 12 months was allowing priests to abuse children with impunity. This, a church that has led the way in misogyny and stopping women from leading in the life of the church. Oh, it's all right to give birth to Jesus. It's not okay to preach the gospel of Jesus. I'm sorry, but that church has not earned any kind of a right to say anything about who should be marrying anyone. What's the problem here? Paul tells us it's sin. Yeah, he calls it sin. And he said we have a tendency when we're in groups to sin a whole lot worse than when we're on our own. You know, I have no doubt that many of those who were involved in the insurrection on January 6th are good people. They love their children and sacrifice for them. They care about their spouses. They work hard at their jobs. But together is a group as a mob, they allowed themselves to do something in a group they never would have done on their own, and they brought great havoc to our nation and threatened our very democracy. But here's an interesting point, seldom talked about. 90% of the 10,000 people who were there that day, who were incited to riot, headed toward the Capitol and turned around. When they saw what was happening, they said, oh, wait, this I will not do. They had agency. When Jonathan was about 12 years of age, we used to leave the house occasionally thinking that he was 12. He could cover 30 minutes with his sisters, three and four years younger than he was. Then one day I came home and found out he'd instituted a new game while we were gone called Death by Sleeping Bag. He would put the girls in the sleeping bag head first, put them on the floor with a bag half zipped up. He would push them down the stairs. Now, we did live in a house that was a split level. It was just five stairs, but still, it was five stairs. The girls said, yeah, they kind of enjoyed it, but for the most part, no. I said, Jonathan, buddy, what are you thinking? And he said, I just can't help myself. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. You have agency. You can decide to love your sisters, or you can decide to have power over your sisters. I will help you make the right decision. Here's the truth, folks. The line between good and evil runs straight through the center of the human heart. I'm going to say it again. The line between good and evil runs straight through the center of the human heart. Half of me wants to love my neighbors, all of them. Half of me wants to have power over my neighbors. Now let me tell you what that does not mean. That does not mean that God has to turn away from me. That does not mean that God has to say to me, I'm sorry, because of that half of you that wants power over others, I'm going to have to send you to hell. That did not cause me to say as a parent to my son, oh, I'm sorry, because sometimes you choose power over your sisters, I'm going to banish you from the family. No. It just meant that I, as a parent, was continually having to remind my son, let your better angels win. Let your better half win. 
be sure you put yourself in an environment in which your better half can win. The line between good and evil runs straight through the center of the human heart. So what's the option? It's simple. It's not groups of people who bring evil into the world. It's one person, me, who decides not to turn away, but to join the crowd at the Capitol and step into those hallowed halls when I know I don't belong there. I have agency. I choose to love power more than to love my neighbor. That's me. You're the same. Every follower of Jesus is the same. What about Peter? <laughs> I was named after Paul. I've never identified with Paul. Oh, I identify with Peter. Peter was a good man who wanted to love his neighbor. He had some great strengths. Three of them show up in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus asks the 12 a question. Who am I? Who do you think I am? They don't want to answer it. And so they do what we all do when we don't want to actually directly answer a question. Just watch a politician during a press conference. They say, well, some people say that your Elijah come back to life, one of the prophets come back to life, even John the Baptist come back to life. Jesus is like, yep, yeah, no, no. Who do you say that I am? And now they're all looking down, except Peter, who speaks up and says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Whoa, nobody understood that. We find out Peter was a very bright man who processed information quickly. There were a lot of clues about who Jesus was, but not enough for most people to notice. Peter had figured it out. This was the Messiah who was coming to reign over the world. The one who was coming to change everything. The Christ, the son of the living God. Hey, Peter's a good guy. He's smart, he processes information quickly, and he is bold. He speaks up when the others don't have the courage to speak up. And what happens? Jesus says, good, yes, yes. And here's the deal. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, Peter. You're going to be the very first one to preach the gospel because not only are you smart, not only do you process information quickly, not only are you bold, you are a great speaker. And Peter leaves feeling pretty good about himself. He should. He's a good guy. But most of us discover sooner or later that our strengths taken to an extreme become our weaknesses. One chapter later, Jesus takes the three strongest leaders, Peter, James, and John, to the top of the mountain, probably Mount Hermon. They fall asleep, they wake up. When they wake up, they're no longer alone with Jesus. Moses and Elijah are there. Moses and Elijah have been dead for, I don't know, centuries. James and John are just not Peter. No, Peter immediately starts talking. Hey, I've got this great idea. Why don't we build three tents here? Tabernacle-like structures that can protect all three of you. One for each of you, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Well, we can do that. You can see James and John off to the side going, Peter, 
It is, no, no. Moses and Elijah looking at each other and then at Jesus. Who's that? Oh, yeah, that's Peter. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't you say he was the one getting the church underway? Yeah, he's the one. Are you sure? And then God speaks up and says, I'm God. This is my son, Jesus. Sorry, buddy, but I don't think anybody asked you to talk. I mean, how many of you have had God tell you to shut up? Yeah, Peter was a good guy, smart guy, a bold guy, processed information quickly, had a gift of gab. All of those strengths also were his weaknesses. Peter didn't seem to understand it's all right to have an unexpressed thought. I have to tell myself that all the time. It is all right to have an unexpressed thought. I process information out loud. I think out loud. Don't take all that seriously, what I'm saying, till I've said it, I don't know, 10 or 12 times. There are often times I listen and hear myself in the air and I say, wait, did I say that out loud? Yeah, it's all right to have an unexpressed thought. Let's be clear about what Peter was doing. He was positioning himself to have greater power than James and John. He wanted Jesus, God, Moses, and Elijah to know he had them covered. They could have three tents and he would protect them from the elements. He was the one they should look to for leadership. James and John just sitting off to the side thinking, oh, we would never do that. They did exactly the same thing not long later. And what did they do? They brought their mother with them to make the request. I mean, it's all pretty sad. He gets worse. Jesus tells his 12 disciples, I'm going to be taken away, mock scourged, spit upon, killed. Three days later, I'm going to be raised again. And you, you're all going to leave. And Peter now shows the true level of his entitlement and privilege and his narcissism. He says, oh, no, 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 no. Now, these other 11... I mean, really, some of them, why are they even here, Jesus? You know they're not as bright as I am. They're not as good at I, as I am at all the things I can do. You know, I'm bold. I, I speak well. You yourself have asked me to preach the first gospel message. No, no Jesus, I'm not. Yeah, they're all going to leave you. But me? No. No, I'm the man. I will never leave you. I've got the real stuff. Jesus says, Peter, I mean, before the first rooster of the morning crows, you're going to deny even knowing me three times. Oh, no, 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 no. I would go down to death in battle with you. Of course I would do that. I, I will never, ever leave you. Then what Jesus predicted actually happens. Authorities take him away. And Peter's world's turned upside down. Wait, wait, wait. I, I was supposed to preach the first um, gospel message. I was supposed to be at your right hand, your left hand, as your kingdom comes into being. I was supposed to be your secretary of state, your secretary of defense. I was supposed to be your chief assistant, all rolled into one. Oh, no. Who am I if I'm not your powerful right-hand man? The authorities show up. Hey, you were a follower of Jesus. We saw you. No one, not me. 
Who's it? Who's that? No, not me. The other people? You know, not me. Wait a minute. I saw you. You have the same accent as all of Jesus' followers. You, you're one of his disciples. No, 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 not me. Not me. Whatever it took to change his accent, I suppose. Another one said to him, cut it. I mean, give up, dude. You were with him. Swears down an oath. Damn it, I don't know the guy. And then the rooster crows. And he goes out alone and weeps bitterly. He should be weeping bitterly. Yeah, Peter, you're no better than the rest. You think you're going to love your neighbor? Dude, it's power you love. Power over your neighbor. That's what you loved. And look where you are now. But true to his word, Jesus is raised from the dead. The disciples see him, although not all that often, not as much as they would like. One day they've been fishing all night long. They haven't caught anything. The light of dawn has come. A guy on the shore says, cast your nets on the other side. And they think, yeah, sure, yeah, listen to a non-fisherman. But, you know, I mean, they haven't caught anything. They cast their nets on the other side. They come up with 153 fish. They take another look at the guy on the shore. It's Jesus. Well, they haven't seen him all that often, so they're done fishing. They head back to the shore. Peter, being the impetuous person he always was, jumps into the water and swims back to the shore. Soaking wet, he gets warmed by the fire. Jesus fixes breakfast for them all. And then I think taking Peter off to the side where he won't be embarrassed with his pretty clear weak ego, great ego need, Jesus has some questions for Peter. Does Peter, do you love me more than the rest of these guys? Now, there are four Greek words for love. There's agape, which means unselfish love. There's phileo, filio, philos, which means tender affection, or maybe just the word like. There's storge, which is parental love, and there's eros, erotic love. Jesus says, do you unselfishly love me more than the rest of these? And Peter has finally had his necessary failure. We all have to have at least one. One time when we realize we're not everything we think we are. One time when we realize we need help because we don't really love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves and power over our neighbor. He's had his great awakening. He knows if he says, sure, I love you unselfishly. It's the old Peter. The one that he's got to put to death. And he says, yeah, yeah I, I love you with tender affection. I like you, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, no, the only people who can be my followers, they ought to love me perfectly. They have to always love their neighbor and never love power more than their neighbors. So back in the boat, go fishing, dude. No. He says, feed my sheep. Second time, do you unselfishly love me? Thought we'd been through this, Jesus? I like you a lot. Love, I've discovered, I may not be real good at. Jesus says, tend my lambs. 
Now he says again, do you love me? Only actually what he says is, do you like me? Do you have tender affection for me? He uses Peter's word for love, and Peter's like, yep, yep, I like you, Jesus, a lot. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus says, three times do you love me? Three times Peter answers saying basically, yeah, I've discovered this thing. I've discovered that the line between good and evil runs straight through the center of the human heart. And I've discovered that a lot of the time, I really would rather have power over my neighbor than I would love my neighbor. And Jesus has said three times, oh, I know. I'm the one who created you. I know that. Don't you think I had the same temptation? Don't you think every one of us does? Peter, we all, we all have a line between good and evil running straight through the center of our hearts. The question is, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do in this moment? Which side of your heart will you listen to? That is what this entire story is about. The story of Israel, the story of captivity, the story of Jesus, the message of Jesus that God's heart will always be favoring the oppressed, the mothers, the children, the widows and the orphans, the immigrants, those who are lost, those who do not have opportunities, those who did not get a head start. God will always be in the side of the oppressed. And we will always have two sides in our own hearts. A side that wants to have power over others, to be the oppressor, and a side that wants to love our neighbor. And every single morning, it's a new day with a new choice. Now I can tell you, left to your own devices, you're going to make the wrong choice more often than you make the right one. That's why you need us. That's why we need each other. It's why we need the church. Because the church, we're our reminders. We're each other's reminders. Because a lot of the times we choose power over another, it's not even explicit. It's not even conscious. It's implicit. It's a bias we don't even know we have. And that's where we need our friends who love us dearly to say, oh, actually, right now, you're loving power, not your neighbor. It ain't complicated, folks. Loving God, loving neighbor, loving self, that's the job. It's just extremely hard to do. So here's my challenge. Tomorrow morning, Wake up, and tomorrow morning say, today, I'm going to love my neighbor more than I love my power. And I'm going to listen to all of my neighbors and listen to them carefully to know my blind spots. Peter did. Preach the gospel. Change the world. So can you. Thank you, God, for creating us with the capacity to love.
The capacity to be selfish, well, and nothing special about that. That's true of every single creature. The capacity to love, that's what puts us in your image. But it's a choice we have to make. Help us to make it today, tomorrow, always. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.